Happy Friday, one and all. This is Kevin McDonald, executive producer for New Mexico in Focus. And this is the podcast version of the show for Friday, May 15th, 2020. We hope that you all are staying safe, staying healthy. Lots of breaking news this week on the COVID-19 front. We're going to kick things off this week with a conversation about the governor's announcement this week that she is uh, moving us towards phase one of reopening in New Mexico. Some of the big takeaways there include the ability for other businesses who have been considered non-essential and closed down to uh, begin to open up under restrictions. Employees need to be masked. They'll still be held to a percentage of their capacity inside their businesses at any time. Uh, curbside, um, if they can do curbside uh, business models, uh, also that will help with that as well. Um, and so we wanted to get some reaction to that. Also, the big takeaway from the governor's press release on press conference on Wednesday was the fact that she has made the move to make face masks mandatory in public places for everyone, which has um, caused a lot of controversy, a lot of pushback uh, about whether or not that is infringing on people's personal rights. So we've got a group of virtual line panelists that joined us via Zoom again this week. That is Sophie Martin, Tom Garrity, both regulars on the show, and we welcome back Ed Perea, an attorney and a a public safety analyst. Uh, He's got a lot of great insight on this as well. So let's kick it off with uh, host Gene Grant and the line panelists and their discussion of Governor Lujan Grisham's announcements this week. Not enough for some, too much for others. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham announced she's easing her public health order, allowing most retailers to open with very limited capacity. She also implemented a statewide mandate to wear masks in public. I've got a great group joining me for a remote line panel, starting with regular and local attorney, Sophie Martin. Sophie, welcome. Another regular back with us this week is Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR. Tom, thanks for joining us. And we welcome back Ed Perea. He's a lawyer and public safety analyst. Now, Sophie, the governor set up these gating criteria based on her Wednesday briefing. Mm -hmm. The state is close to meeting them. Did you see enough in your mind to set your mind at ease with what she's laid out? You know, I I think um, it's hard when you are sort of a member of the general public and are not necessarily seeing all of the granular detail that the governor is seeing Mm -hmm. to make a fully informed decision. Let's face it, that's why we have elected officials in part, and that's why we have the press to help kind of mediate that information for us. Um, But given the numbers that the state is showing, many portions of the state below the, the, what is it, these 1.15 transmission levels that we would like to see, um, it it looks like... um, you know, based on what we what we know from public health experts, like this is the time that the state can very slowly start making steps. And these are slow steps. What I thought was pretty significant, though, is the, the step in the other direction that so many people are talking about right now, which is um, going from a suggestion that people wear masks in public to a mandate that people wear masks in public. And admittedly, she, she sort of let the cat out of the bag that there wasn't going to be a whole lot of enforcement around that. Um, but you hope that with that mandate, more people will take responsibility for securing masks and wearing them when out and about. Mm-hmm. Ed, touch on that if you would. Uh, the idea of masks, we're watching what's happening around the country here in New Mexico is, you know, 
it's been up and down, some problems, some, you know, some folks are taking to it. What's your sense of how New Mexico is going to respond to that part of the order starting Saturday? Well, we're one of the few states that are mandating this use of masks. Of course, you know, this governor had a fairly, um, you know, positive success in, in her initial response to it. Uh, so I think we need to take a look at this, this mask issue and, and give an opportunity. Now, that being said, we know that there are both sides to this issue. Uh, in many ways, it's, it's, it's a philosophical position. Some people will view this as individual rights. They should have a right to do what they choose to do, and, and whether that's wearing a mask or not. And others uh, look at more the, the group approach and say, what's in the best interest of everyone? And so we're going to see those conflicts out there, whether they're physical, verbal, or just implied conflicts um, out in the community amongst those people who uh, choose to wear masks versus, versus those who don't want to wear masks. Of course, we often hear this this argument uh, on one side that it interferes uh, with one's uh, individual rights and even civil liberties not to have the freedom of, of choice. But uh, one thing that we have to remember, and, and we, we hear this you know, time and time again, uh, especially with regards to this pandemic, is we're all in this together. And what we do, what we as individuals do, impacts you know, our, our fellow uh, person, or, or, you know, fellow human being. Uh, you know, I've often said if someone says I don't want to wear a mask, I should have a right to, to, to make that decision. Well, if your decision doesn't impact anyone else, okay, I think that's a valid point. But once you move into the, um, you know, the, the public forum and you have contact with other individuals, I think we have a, a personal human obligation to do our part to minimize uh, whatever injury we might be able to cause, especially with this um, invisible virus because um, we don't know where it's going to go and I, I think it's important as a community to be prudent uh, of course everything we need to do uh, we need to strive to be to be balanced and uh, I'm just hoping that uh, the governor has mentioned the, the mandate uh, I, I think at least initially uh, hopefully there's some peer pressure um, and to find that norm too is, is where is that reasonable place to uh, to wear the mask, uh, when's it appropriate, when's it not? And it, and again, I think it's just this learning curve for our community at, at, at what point we decide, and we decide individually, um, where that's in the best interest of ourselves and, and our fellow human beings. That's right. You know, Tom, part, of the, part and parcel of politicking is the art of persuasion. It's part of being an, elect, an elected official. You have to have very good persuasive skills has, has the governor in your uh, vision made a persuasive argument for masks and as well as the other criteria? We shouldn't just get hung up on masks. The 25% for the retailers that are opening versus the 20% for big boxes. I'm hearing a lot of confusion out there. How persuasive was she in your view? Well, uh, I, I think she's, the governor has done a very good job in leading the state through this crisis. Um, the, you know, it's a health crisis and, you know, her background has really helped along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, as far as her, the briefing that occurred yesterday, you know, you can't necessarily create that much passion within a two hour news briefing, um, you know, because there's so many different messages to keep track and they had a lot of information to share. Mm -hmm. um, you know, partially reopening the, uh, the economy is a tactic. Masks are a tactic. Um, and those are all very good tactics. Uh, but what I think we're, we're missing right now from the, from the populace is just a confidence, not necessarily uh, confidence in the governor or confidence in the president, confidence 
that we're heading in the right direction. And I just don't see a whole lot of hope right now. Uh, and maybe there isn't. I'd like to think that there is uh, the opportunity for hope and confidence. Uh, we know that just from uh, surveys of federal and state government officials that trust uh, is something that lacks. Uh, you know, and so I think that you know, really kind of positioning, say, here's what the hope is for the future of New Mexico's health, and then the hope for New Mexico's economy. Um, I think those two are hand in hand. And lately, all we've, all I've really been seeing through the news briefings is, you know, a focus on the health aspect, which is very important. Yeah. Hey, Sophie, our colleague Matt Grubbs asked an interesting question in that, uh, in the governor's bit yesterday, and that was about contact tracing and monitoring uh, cell phone data and personal data to contact trace. What, what did you, what's your sense of that? This is an issue that's sort of lurking underneath, but it's important when it comes to freedoms and such, Sophie Martin. What's your sense of that one, where the governor's coming from? So what's interesting, I think, if I can just sort of pick a part of that out, is that um, although we're, it's sort of like the public is told that we should be concerned about um, tracking of our personal data, tracking, you know, through our cell phones and things like that, our devices for this, is that the average American has already long since given away to, to private companies the ability to track them, to, to pay attention, you know, to, to track what they're searching online. We know, for instance, that a lot of really important early data on COVID-19 came out of tracking of people's uploading of their thermometers, like the data from their thermometers wow. helped helped the thermometer company to, to predict where outbreaks were happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, most of us have given up some portion of that sort of privacy already. And national polling suggests that this is, is actually not that controversial a topic for the American public. Certainly there are people who are gonna be more concerned about it either on a philosophical or a personal level. But, um, and I'm not necessarily cheerleading for like, go give your government all, give the government all your data. But I think in some ways the, the horse is out of the barn on that one. And uh, it's a surprisingly, I think, popular idea that tracing through cell phones. It's a nice passive thing. We sort of like that now. We've gotten used to it with, with um, Google Maps and, mm -hmm. and uh, ad delivery and things like that. You know, it's interesting. We've all signed up for that unknowing. Well, not we all, but signed up with these third-party apps we have on our phone. That's how they're tracing us. I mean, we've already opted in whether we know it or not. Don't hey, you love how paranoid on. that sounds? And yet it is absolutely true. So much truth. Yeah. So much truth. I want to take a minute to remind you that there are many ways you can get up to date on all things New Mexico and focus in this unusual environment we're in. We're doing a lot of interviews at times we wouldn't normally be and trying to get those up online as fast as possible. This week it was one of the segments you'll hear a little bit later on how folks are celebrating Ramadan during a COVID-19 outbreak. And that's especially important to keep track of online because we weren't able to include the full interview in the show this week for time. So you can get the full interview on our website, NewMexicoInFocus.org. Just click under Segments. You can also go to Facebook, to YouTube, to Instagram, to Twitter. There will be ways to watch in all those different ways. I also want to remind you about the Your NMGov podcast that we're doing in partnership with KUNM Radio and the Santa Fe Reporter. And that is now uh, three days a week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday nights. Lots of great topics on that. This week, 
lot of talk about antibody testing and what that means and when we might see that here in New Mexico. Also, again, as we look at different professions and how they're affected by the COVID-19 outbreak, the show tonight, Friday night, the 15th, is all about janitorial services, who, again, a super important um, role they play to keep everything clean and safe, but also putting themselves in some harm's way to do that. So uh, if you haven't already, we encourage you to subscribe to that podcast on Spotify, iTunes, any of the places you get this podcast, go and get that. You can also find that on our website as well and spread the word. Moving on in the show this week, we're continuing to check in with local journalists around the state. And an interesting community is the Grants community. They haven't had a huge outbreak of cases yet to date, but they are really near Gallup, which obviously has faced the brunt of COVID-19 so far in the state, along with Farmington and in San Juan County. And we wanted to check in with uh, Diego Lopez. He's a reporter at the Cibola Citizen to talk about COVID-19 in that community, which has also been really interesting because of the mayor and his uh, defiance uh, of the governor's stay-at-home orders and how that's played out locally in the community and on the businesses there. So here is correspondent Laura Paskus and Diego Lopez of the Cibola Citizen. Hey, I want to move on to Laura Paskus now, uh, who continues her series of interviews with journalists around the state. This week, she's focused on the town of Grants, a case study in divided opinions on the public health order, certainly. She spoke with Diego Lopez, a reporter with the Cibola Citizen. Diego, thank you. So last week, we talked about the lockdown in Gallup, um, which the mayor had requested to try and slow the coronavirus. Just 60 miles away, Grants is experiencing something quite different. Um, is there support for the mayor's reopening of businesses and grants? Oh, most certainly. And uh, most of the support comes from the business owners. Um, you know, you're always going to have pushback. Uh, so you've got your crowd that supports the mayor and there's the crowd that absolutely does not. <laughs> um, but there is definitely some support for the mayor here. Um, but ever since the Supreme Court weighed in and uh, told the mayor that, hey, the city needs to shut down. Uh, there haven't been a whole lot of supporters out in the streets like there were uh, the very first day that he reopened. And so did businesses reopen and are people um, out and about around town? Oh, most definitely. Uh, there were quite a few businesses, actually, that, that opened up that day. Um, I'm sure you, you know the golf course received a citation. Um, and another local business uh, called Papa's Pawn and Gun, they received a $60,000 citation because they never shut down in the first place. Um, but there were a multitude of stores that opened up, and indeed there are still some open today, uh, which to my knowledge have not received a citation or have been visited by the New Mexico State Police. So right now, Cibola County is coming up on about 100 cases, including 15, I believe, in grants itself. Are you expecting cases to increase, and is there um, adequate care and testing for the people who need it in the city? Right. So we're very fortunate that here in Cibola County, um, our hospital, Cibola General Hospital, uh, they were one of the first testing locations in the state. So we're very fortunate about that. Um, otherwise, we do have uh, testing is very widely available to the people here. Um, we have a lot of prisons in the city of Grants, uh, three of them actually, two in the city and one in the village of Milan, which is right next to the city of Grants. Um, 
So we're very fortunate. We have a lot of testing that goes on here. Uh, every single one of the employees was tested at the prisons. Um, so you know, there is an active effort to try to keep people safe and healthy here, uh, both on the state and local levels. Um, so, you know, we're hoping that we don't see a massive rise. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have any doctors uh, or medical uh, professionals who work with our paper, so we couldn't say for sure. Um, but we don't want to see a rise, most certainly. And under kind of normal circumstances, where do people and grants do their shopping? Do they have to come into Albuquerque normally or um, kind of what's happening in grants right now? Yeah, so we have uh, some wonderful nonprofits. We're fortunate we have a Main Street organization. Uh, we have our Chamber of Commerce and just a, a multitude of wonderful nonprofits who help uh, to bolster up the idea of shop local. Um, and, you know, lately that's really taken root with the people here. People love to shop local. Um, we Our biggest store is a Walmart. Um, uh, but just across from the Walmart, we have uh, a Walgreens. Uh, and I, you know, but for the most part, a lot of our shopping is done locally. Uh, if if there's something we can't find or is not available to us, it's definitely a trip to Albuquerque, though. <laughs> so every community in New Mexico is unique. Are there particular challenges um, that you see grants having to deal with in terms of addressing the virus or the public health order that's maybe different from other places in our viewing area? Yeah, so I mean, of course, you know, we already spoke about the mayor a little bit. Um, that was immediately uh, an issue that, that definitely arose. Uh, people not sure whether or not they should follow the governor's stay-at-home order and stay home, or if they should go with the, with, with the mayor and go out and return to life as normal. Uh, it, they couldn't quite decide, and at this point, it's still a mixed crowd. Uh, we do have people who travel to Albuquerque regularly still. Um, so, I mean, life changed drastically for many of our citizens, but for several others, uh, unfortunately, Grants has a, it's, it's a low economy area. So most of the people who live in this community are essential workers. So whether they want to or not, they have to be out and about and uh, doing their job in the public eye. Right. Well, Diego, thank you so much for continuing to do your job. And I hope that you and your family all stay safe. And thank you. Thank you very much, Laura. And I wish the same to you. Thank you very much for having me. We spent a lot of time on the show in recent weeks looking at how the COVID-19 outbreak is affecting disproportionately the Navajo Nation, both here and in Arizona. But there are good stories that are coming out on this all the time as well. We want to share one of those this week, uh, we have an interview with a gentleman who has recovered fully after being diagnosed with COVID-19. Uh, he is on the road to recovery, doing well. We're going to hear from him. We're also going to hear from a reporter covering uh, the outbreak in the Navajo Nation and look at the response there and the challenges that they continue to face. Here now is correspondent, correspondent Antonia Gonzalez. Louis, Joe, and Sunny Klotchis, Jilligi, thank you so much for joining us this week on New Mexico in Focus. Thank, thank you for having me. 
Louis, you live on the Arizona side of the reservation where an area that's been hit hard by COVID-19, um, you tested positive in April. Take us back to your first experience um, being tested positive. Um, the first experience was um, two days, three days prior of being uh, tested. I was uh, feeling symptoms of uh, the sore throat and the tiredness. I was actually kind of thinking I'm sleeping more than usual and sleeping during the day, which is not me. And um, it just started going to um, the body aches and the headaches. And that's when I decided to go in when uh, we were taking our walk and I almost faded and fell. So my wife decided to take me into the ER. So it was quite an experience. I, was, I, I tried being in denial about it, saying that it's going to be okay. It's, it's not what what you think it is, but it, it actually was. And you had a painful physical experience. You've been out of work and you've also tested again to be able to go back to work. Is that right? How were people around you reacting to um, you having been tested positive? Pretty much can't go anywhere. Um, I, I was the only person at the time to make supply runs. And of course, with uh, Bash is the only store here, and I work over there too. I was denied access in there, but which I understand, you know, it's for the safety of um, everybody that works there and for the customers there. So they denied me access. But um, you you get treated differently, uh, especially when everybody knows you. But other than that, I mean, everybody comes around and they've been all awesome supportive with us and the kids. But um, the Second round of testings that I did was uh, the first one came back negative, which I was very excited. And a week later, the second one came back uh, positive, which kind of shook my world again. But um, I'm hoping for the best for this next coming round of testings. And how are you feeling today? I'm feeling great. Um, I no, no symptoms whatsoever, but when we last talked, um, I was kind of fearing about the uh, sore throat and the, um, the headache, but that was only that one evening, but other than that, I'm feeling great. Um, I, I really don't know why I tested positive when I had no symptoms and I, I still feel fine right now. And Sunny, you are currently studying and teaching here in Albuquerque at the University of New Mexico, but you're a longtime journalist covering the Navajo Nation. Um, and you know the Shiprock New Mexico communities well, being familiar with that area. Um, the Navajo health departments are talking and reporting about um, that Shiprock Gallup area being hard hit now. What are you seeing is most concerning in that area, Sunny? I think that um, I just did some reporting there, I think about just over a week ago, which really changed my perspective on doing in-person reporting, but that's another story. But in terms of what I've seen, I think that um, people are a little unsure, I think, of what to do or how to deal with what's happening still. I mean, I was there during the lockdown and it seemed that people were adhering to, to the lockdown and the, the rules that are connected to that, but there were still, there was still traffic um, and you hear about people still visiting and still not taking things seriously outside of that. So I think that we're still in, they're still in this kind of phase of, of learning, you know, of really, accepting even what's happening and how this is affecting people. Um, I think the biggest thing that I've been hearing and seeing is that 
maybe a lack of education in terms of how does the virus work exactly? How do people get it? Um, you know, you hear a lot of, oh, wash your hands or social distance, but I think especially with older people, um, there's this lack of knowledge in terms of exactly how do you get this? How do people get this? So that's kind of what I'm seeing in that area. And do you feel like those New Mexico communities get as much attention as other communities on the Navajo Nation? I think right now there's a feeling that they aren't. There is a feeling that they aren't because, um, you know, I'm fairly active on social media as well. So there are things that I hear about from sources and just from, you know, within my own community. I mean, I don't, I, my parents live not too far from Shiprock. So I'm with kind of within that when I go and go back and see them. And there is a feeling of being forgotten, I think. And, and I feel like that's just not now, but it's kind of a known thing that, you know, we are forgotten sometimes on the New Mexico side of the reservation, especially near the Eastern Agency. And as you get farther away from the reservation and kind of the middle of it, there's that feeling of, well, when are we going to get what we need? And I know in response to that, places like Shiprock are putting together their own relief organizations and finding ways to respond in their own way because they're used to that. They're used to kind of being forgotten sometimes. And with your reporting, um, you had a recent piece that was in the New York Times talking about why the spread is so rapid on the Navajo. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of mainstream news reports talking about infrastructure and housing needs and water, but can you talk about what your piece really, when it comes to culture and the way of life of Navajo people? Yeah, I think with that piece, um, you know, when they when they approached me about writing something, I I had to really think about what was the core of of why things were spreading. And the biggest thing I could think of is my own actions. You know, what do what do I do? What does my family do? How are they acting? And I could see that there was it was really hard to imagine being separate from each other. It was hard for say my mom, for instance, to stay away from her brother to make sure that he has what he needs. And so even now we're, we're still finding that difficult. I'm finding that difficult. Um, and so the, the pinnacle of that piece of that column was just to show that, yes, it is hard, but it's, but it's the, the hardest, how do I say this? It is hard, but usually the answers for what we need to do are in those hard things. And what's hard is staying apart and not being together. And that was, that's the, exactly the answer for our way of, of curving this, is to do what's hardest for us to do, and that's to not be together, so. And Lewis, um, for you, what's your next step? I'm hoping for a negative on this test because um, <clears throat> I am gonna be donating my blood and hopefully um, it will help out. And um, my, Inspiration for that was uh, my little cousin brother was an, admitted to the ICU in Phoenix and he had the virus, but he's recovering right now and he's doing great. But he was my inspiration for this. But that's my plan um, for that and return back to work and hopefully, hopefully we'll adjust to this new normal. And what's your message, Lewis, for people, the Navajo people, um, as you're a person who has been through this personally and it impacted you personally, what is your message to the Navajo Nation? Listen, 
don't don't be stubborn and listen to the first responders. Listen to our Navajo Nation president. And please stay home and follow the curfew. And like Sonny said, the hardest thing is staying away from family, and that is really hard. Try to resist that and just listen to your first responders and thank your first responders, the nurses, the doctors, the officers, and the grocery the grocery stores, the retail members. Please thank them. And that's all I have to say is just listen to them. And Sunny, what is next to in your report? There are a lot of stories to cover on the Navajo Nation. What's your next story? Well, I have, um, I have a project I'm working on right now. It's actually a, a year-long project that has to do with um, the pandemic on the reservation with Searchlight New Mexico, an investigative journalism team out of Santa Fe. And I've got, I've, I still contribute to the Navajo Times when I have the chance, but I'm trying to figure out the, finish the semester out. I have grades to do for my students and, you know, trying to finish that part of my life so I can dive back into reporting full time and, and help essentially where I'm needed. Um, that's just kind of how I look at it. I'm always going to be a, a lifelong storyteller. And I think that there's little that we can do from afar because we have to stay away. Um, but I feel like this is the most that I can do is continue to tell people's stories and whatever angle that might be and whoever's story that might be and wherever it might be near or off the reservation for um, to, to be able to share what are the experiences that are happening and hopefully use those as messages to continue to help fight this virus in our nation. Well, Sunny and Lewis, I wanna thank you for joining us this week virtually on New Mexico in Focus here on New Mexico PBS. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. The summer has fully cooked, kicked in here in New Mexico. This is normally a, a huge time for tourism in the state. Those dollars coming in to help our state coffer as people come and enjoy all the great outdoor spaces and activities and festivals and everything else that New Mexico is so famous for. And of course, COVID-19 is affecting all that. One of the big announcements this week was the Santa Fe Opera announcing their decision to cancel the season this summer. Another huge blow. Of course, Indian Market, the International Folk Art Market have already been canceled in Santa Fe. The hits just keep coming, unfortunately. Uh, is there room for opportunity in this as well? We wanted to talk about all these issues with our line opinion panelists. Lots of great insight here. And for now, let's turn it back to Jean Grant and our line panelists for that discussion. This week, the Santa Fe Opera joined the list of summer festivals, fairs, and events that have called off their 2020 editions. New Mexico's tourism industry is being hammered by this pandemic, even as some hotels and resorts start to slowly reopen ahead of the Memorial Day weekend. Ed, you've been around here long enough to know that for parts of New Mexico, this is a very big deal. Uh, any given thing like the opera employs and helps employ thousands of people. You get the sense that anyone's going to want to travel to New Mexico this summer. This, this could be problematic. We so rely on our, our tourism industry, just the, the revenue and tax dollars that it it makes for the state. It's so important to us. And New Mexico is such a, such a beautiful state. I, I can see why many would want to come and visit. But yes, we are at a point in our, in our history here in New Mexico where maybe we need to think twice about, about how we're promoting New Mexico. The question might be for some is, uh, until we have this vaccine and this cure, 
for with COVID-19, uh, do we want a lot of people coming into the state? Could, could that right. potentially you know, have an impact uh, on this uh, uh, on this COVID virus virus um, that, that we're dealing with here? Um, yeah. you know, on the other hand, where do we make up the the revenue? And maybe that's where some of our leadership needs to start thinking is outside that proverbial box. Tourism was great uh, in the past; eighty four percent decrease. Um, uh, 19 over uh, over the current um, uh, revenue data for 2020 with tourism. Um, and it may not come back for some time. We might want to be very careful that we don't force the issue, but rather we, again, start to come up with other innovative ways in which to make up that revenue. And I, and I know it's difficult, um, right. but you know, we need to balance our, our economics with, with public health. Yeah. Uh, I know there was a story came out with regard to Elephant Butte. It's one of the most you know widely visited state parks in the state. And there's a cry out there that we really need to open up Elton Butte, that it has a large enough space to allow for social distancing. And, and right now, there's, it's, it's, it's an issue that, that hasn't, been, um, hasn't been decided um, you know, very, mm-hmm. uh, very clearly as far as what the future is uh, for opening a park like Elephant Butte. We're approaching that time it, of year. Um, it's, our, it's, our, it's our version of the beach, exactly. That's right. That's Memorial Day, one of the biggest days of the year for, uh, for Elephant Butte. So um, right. I think we really need to take a look at our tourism, what it means, and how we replace those dollars, and, and whether we really want to keep the same focus in the time being mm-hmm. on our tourism industry. Let, let, me, let me jump Tom in here real quick. There's an obvious question. Tom, your association with Balloon Fiesta is well known, certainly for our audience I can't even imagine the conversations the Balloon Fiesta folks might be having right now. If you're talking tourists coming from all over the world to this one spot in New Mexico, that's a very difficult position. What, what's, what's your sense of it thus far? Well, Balloon Fiesta is the most prominent event in the state. It is an international event. Uh, we had uh, representatives from 17 countries fly balloons. And there's a lot of uh, the visitor industry is very reliant upon the $156 million of economic impact. Uh, you know, the event right now is moving forward to uh, take place in some form or fashion. Fortunately, if there is a fortunate with all of this, uh, you know, we're still looking at, you know, four or five months out in the future. And uh, right now, everybody's just focused on the next month, month and a half. Uh, you know, there are a lot of different discussions. Everybody seems to be weighing in to try and determine what Fiesta's future is. But the Balloon Fiesta's 24-member volunteer board is really good at, uh, you know, cre- coming up with creative ways to either launch or creative and safe ways to land. So, uh, you know, everybody's working forward uh, to a Balloon Fiesta in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tourism industry as a whole, I think right now, really needs to be focusing on a regional drive market. Uh, because that's really the only thing that is really viable at this particular point in time. Right. Abandon the, uh, you know, really marketing folks to come visit New Mexico by way of air travel. And uh, as soon as, as Ed mentioned, as soon as we have a vaccine, we'll be able to see, you know, that new normal can uh, start to take place and visitation and tourism will uh, re-engage. Sophie, let me touch on what Tom just mentioned, that drive-in market. There's no, you know, no question we all understand we're a playground for Texas, Oklahoma, Arizona, California, Nevada, all those drive-in markets that Tom just mentioned. But if we're insisting on wearing, here's my, my question. If we're insisting on wearing masks here, how do we insist to people who are visiting here for vacation that come from places 
that are not that mask friendly, say Texas, <laughs> that as soon as you land here, you're going to have to wear a mask. Is that even possible? Listen, listen, right now, it's more than that, because right now we have a 14 day quarantine for people who fly in from other states. And so and so that's a really significant barrier, at least for flights. And the governor has said that has said that there's a they're going to continue and they're going to expand testing on routes heading in for drivers as well. So that 14 day quarantine is a big thing. I'm sort of picking up on something that Tom was talking about, though, is that um, there is a sort of field of dreams thing that is, well, let me say this first. I'll say field of dreams. I'll go back to Tom. There's this field of dreams thing that's happening, I think, across the country, which is essentially if we open it, they will come. And we know from nationwide polling, there's a, a weekly poll that's happening through the Harris poll that folks are really looking to when the pandemic ends, what will I be willing to do? Will I be willing to go to restaurants? And how long will it take before I'm willing to do that, stay in a hotel room, get on a, an airplane, et cetera? And right now, people are very, very cautious. People are, are, are saying, like, I'm going to hold off. I'm going to wait even after sort of whatever the pandemic end is. Um, but the other thing that I think is worth noting is that many people in the tourism industry are comparing this time period to the period right after September 11th, 2001, right. when, when tourism, of, of course, uh, took a huge hit. This is a much more extended period of time that we're dealing with. But what, what we did discover, what tourism did discover during that period was that people were willing to drive. And so, and so that, um, that willingness to drive, to you know, stay in campgrounds, to use your camper, things like that. New Mexico has um, so many great outdoor uh, opportunities, so many beautiful landscapes, et cetera. My expectation is that that's what's sort of gonna kick things off for the state is that, that experience of being in the great wide open that New Mexico, um, you know, we offer so many beautiful places to do that. It's a dilemma. You know, we see the lodgers tax dropping like a stone. We see the revenues for the Sunport just announced yesterday that it was just a it's a huge difficulty that way, too. It's a hard situation. I have to wrap this up there, guys. Thanks again to you three. Really appreciate it. Great show today and for connecting and weighing in during these weird, wild times. And be safe till I see you next week. Hospitals continue to be ground zero for COVID-19 response in New Mexico as they, uh, as we all look to stay ahead of the curve and make sure that they don't get overrun with COVID-19 cases, that they can stay afloat when they're not able to do non-essential services. The challenges are, are deep and long for the hospital industry here in New Mexico. We've been fortunate enough to talk to some hospital administrators in the southern part of the state in the past, and this week we're turning to the northwest corner of the state where we know the situation is a lot more dire than in some other parts of the state. So uh, senior producer Matt Grubbs was able to catch up with uh, the nurse, chief nursing official for the, um, the hospital in Grants, New Mexico, again, right on the border of Gallup, as well as the chief administrator of the San Juan Regional Medical Center in Farmington, which really is the epicenter of the outbreak in the state so far. Wanted to find out how they're doing uh, just in terms of the influx of patients, but also how their personnel, their employees are, are handling dealing with a pandemic like this, which is no, um, 
no small thing. So here now is senior producer Matt Grubbs. Maria, I'd, I'd like to start with you. Um, what are you and your staff seeing in your hospital right now? Actually, we are faring a lot better than many facilities. We do have PUIs in our facility right now, no COVID positive patients at this time. We have had um, some, but none at this time. Um, we are screening lots daily. We have associated with our hospital a, a clinical, um, critical access clinic, which we are have a clean and a dirty. And so we're sending all those patients there and screening through there. Okay. Um, what is it like caring for, um, for people who have active COVID infections? They're sick people. And so um, just the, you know, the whole process, you don't even think of uh, the donning and the doffing and being so careful to ensure that you don't infect yourself or your workspace. You know, all of that just takes time. Okay. Um, Jeff, up in, up in the four corners, um, I would imagine you're seeing uh, an, an influx of folks. Uh, what's happening at San Juan Regional Medical Center? Yeah, uh, thank you, Matt. Uh, we have uh, we have seen uh, really an uptick in our census just over the last two or three days for the first time since this whole COVID-19 response began when the, uh, when the shutdown on non-essential healthcare services occurred, our, our volumes both on the inpatient side uh, outpatient surgery and emergency department volumes really dropped sharply, but uh, we're up to 140 uh, inpatients today. We have currently, uh, as of this morning, 32 COVID positive patients and three PUIs, uh, and we've discharged uh, 109 uh, COVID patients who have recovered well enough to either go home or to their alternate, uh, alternate care site. Uh, what kind of stress does this put on um, on the rest of the hospital operating? I know recently the governor uh, allowed some procedures to continue um, or, or to resume, I should say, uh, that aren't COVID related or aren't emergent. Um, just explain to me what your what your staffing situation looks like and your resources right now. Well, the the the, the, the impact on the hospital is widespread. Um, our our PPE is in. Um, in very adequate shape, if not exceptional shape. Uh, we, we have an excellent emergency and disaster preparedness uh, program, so we've, we've maintained adequate supply there. Uh, the stress on the staff is very real. Um, as, as Maria mentioned, that, you know, these, these patients are very sick, and to see, um, to see patients come in and decompensate and pass away as quickly as some of these have, uh, is hard on professional caregivers whose whose calling is to heal and provide comfort to those who are sick, and you know to not be able to do that, and then often to see those patients have the type of isolation they do from their family members uh, while they're recovering or even at the end of life is is very very difficult on everyone who's involved in that. So we've done a lot to try to support uh, our teams through uh, just social work availability, chaplain availability. Uh, we're standing up some additional uh, emotional support services this week. And then the, the stress on the balance of the hospital is, is real as well, particularly from a financial uh, component. Uh, you know, we estimate that we're taking about a 40% per month um, reduction in our net revenue uh, to date. So 
you know, that creates a lot of stress as well as most hospitals typically operate on a very thin margin. And that, that loss of revenue is, is truly creating another sort of pain. Maria, um, I'd like to ask you if your staffing um, levels have changed at all, if you've had staff had to um, have to stay out sick um, or stay out to care for people, family members who, who have COVID in their home? We have only had one staff member that had to stay out. And actually, she was a non-essential staff, and she got it from outside of our facility. So we've been fortunate that way. Um, and the reason I say that is because we don't have much of a bench. I mean, we have no bench. <laughs> we don't have a much of a PRN pool, et cetera. So, you know, the focus really is on keeping our staff healthy, keeping them protected, you know, and, um, you know, changing them out when we need to so that we can keep that flow. That's always a, a big concern. Sure. Um, your staff are, are people like the rest of us, and I'm sure they, um, they hear stories from colleagues, uh, they watch the news to some extent. Um, how are they doing with, uh, with sort of what Jeff was talking about, the, the psychological aspect of this? You know, I think they have really risen to the occasion. Um, you know, we haven't had near the devastation that Farmington and Gallup McKinley has seen, knock on wood. You know, we're right down the road. We're always fearing that shoe to drop. Um, ours has been less than theirs. Um, but the one patient that did expire in our facility was very devastating for all the reasons that Mr. Burgess said is that, you know, the isolation, the, you know, having to watch them. And it's, and it's a, not a pretty, not a pretty death by any means. And so, um, you know, that's a real thing. And like he said, we're, we've got to be supportive and here for them and um, have, have resources for them also. Sure. Uh, we've heard that um, with some patients, at least, um, it can go downhill quickly, um, especially with some of the younger patients who, who um, present in the emergency room, um, that it can, um, that the disease can, can progress rapidly. Have you seen that? Yes, we have. Definitely, that is true. And um, that's what's so scary about it. You think one minute you're okay and you're getting better and the next you're not. So that is very, and it's, and it's interesting in our county, and I'm not sure about in Farmington, but the age range, you know, in a lot across New Mexico, uh, across the nation is higher for these people that don't fare well. But in our county, it's been the younger ones, the younger age range, like um, 40-ish. Okay. Uh, Jeff, I know that you um, up in San Juan County have seen a, a number of cases, obviously, from um, managed care facilities or, or congregant settings, I think the health department calls them. Uh, what is that, um, what has that impact been um, to you and to your staff? And also, are you seeing what, what Maria is talking about, that there is a, an impact on some younger people, too? Um. Well, as far as the congregate living settings, uh, skilled nursing, uh, skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes, um, one of our physician leaders has been in contact with the medical directors at those facilities on a regular basis. And um, the, uh, there are several that have a high number of their residents who are in fact COVID positive. Um, and that's a, uh, another difficult situation for the for the facility, for the individuals themselves, and of course their family members, as decisions are having to be made as to whether or not the residents would 
wish to come to the hospital or not should their disease progress or should they just um, pass away in place at their congregate living setting. Um, and the, as you might expect, um, the, um, there's, there are those that wish to stay in place and those that, um, those that wish to come to the hospital for care. Um, the, the older patients, uh, particularly any with a underlying comorbidity, as we've heard time and time again throughout any of the press uh, and media outlets, you know, tend to do very poorly with this disease and have poor outcomes. So uh, that's a tough course of care for those patients. We have seen a number of younger patients as well as Maria mentioned, but our experience is more representative of what you see reported nationally, where uh, the percentage of those that are hospitalized uh, is certainly in the older age demographics for us, but we certainly have seen our share of younger patients, even you know, 40 and younger as well. And again, you've had a doctor um, in touch with some of these uh, some of these care facilities to sort of figure out what the best what the best option is. Is that something new? Well, um, I, I would say not really. But what's new is the the frequency of the contact and the in the content of the contact in the context of uh, this COVID response. There's just uh, increased communication with the medical directors at the various facilities. And we have one of our hospitalists um, who uh, serves as a, as a key liaison between us and the medical directors at those facilities. Okay. Um, Jeff, recently the governor announced that, um, I, I believe through the federal government, um, the state is going to be providing higher Medicaid reimbursement rates. Um, you talked earlier about uh, the low margins um, oftentimes for for hospital facilities. Will that help? And, and how soon will that get there? Do you know? Uh, well, we're very grateful for our state's leaders for advocating on our behalf via the waiver application that was approved by the federal level at CMS. Um, you know, it's estimated that there's a 200 to $250 million monthly shortfall statewide on the part of the hospital. So this, this shot in the arm, um, although it's temporary through the through the length of the national um, emergency declaration, uh, estimates to be about $66 million. Uh, it will certainly help. We haven't had a chance to model um, how much of that would be um, available to us. It's going to be on a per case basis, per patient basis. Um, and the timing of that is still um, not certain uh, at the moment. I believe the state is going to work to try to get that expedited as quickly as possible, though. Okay. Um, the uh, Doctors Without Borders uh, recently arrived on the Navajo Nation um, to assist them. Are you getting, Jeff, spillover, um, so to speak, from the Navajo Nation, whether it's IHS or, or from some of these facilities that Doctors Without Borders is setting up? Well, certainly, and, and not really tied to the Doctors Without Borders, but we've, we've taken transfers from Northern Navajo Medical Center in Shiprock, um, as well as Rehoboth McKinley and Gallup Indian Medical Center in, uh, in down in uh, Gallup, um, as well as residents from the from the nation have uh, you know found their way directly to our hospital. So, uh, being essentially adjacent to the Navajo Nation, we certainly have cared for many Native American uh, residents that that uh, live. On the, on the Navajo Nation or just uh, individuals of Native American descent that might live uh, in town. 
Okay. Uh, Maria, you're down in Grants, and of course, we've uh, anyone who's been looking at the news uh, has seen the actions that the mayor down there took. Um, one of those folks who's really anxious to get things opened up. Um, from your perspective, do you um, does it feel to you like it's time to sort of maybe start loosening any of these restrictions, or would you like to see them stay in place a little bit longer just for the public health part? Public health, I think we need to keep those in place a little bit longer. You know, um, just with them closing down Gallup, the the busyness of, of grants was markedly increased. Um, just in the last two weeks, we've jumped, we doubled in our numbers where we were two weeks ago, less than two weeks ago, we've doubled. Um, we're starting to see more in our clinic patients from coming from Pruitt, Crown Point, et cetera, that we're testing in our clinics and stuff. So, and they're still on the rise. And so is, um, you know, our three counties, McKinley, Cibola, and Far and San Juan. So until we see that somewhat controlled, I mean, we could be in the same situation as Gallup if we get too, too loose. Jeff, same question for you. It's a great question, Matt. First and foremost, you know, I, I, I can't begin to feel to really appreciate and feel the pain of the small business owner throughout this. This is not only a clinical disaster, but it's truly an economic and financial disaster for our state and particularly for our county up here. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm, my, my, um, my prayers go out to those folks who've been so um, economically damaged by this. Uh, the rest of the story, though, is as Maria points out, is the clinical reality that we're dealing with and how easily this virus is transmitted. And what we know from dealing with past pandemics in our country's history is that we have to take that seriously. And um, you know, we've got to practice social distancing. We've got to practice proper hand hygiene, wearing masks, etc., to do everything we can to to slow the growth of the virus spread and we've got a ways to go here in san juan county and matt i do think that i do think that there are a lot of um local business owners very smart business owners that could do that if they but in the meantime you know they should be getting ready for that but in the meantime we have to get control mentioned it earlier in this podcast but this is the time of Ramadan for those who follow the Islam religion, Islamic religion. And just as we did during the Eastern Passover week, we wanted to check in with some practicing Muslims and, and learn more about how they are still trying to honor the traditions of Ramadan and exercise their faith, but under unusual circumstances. Of course, community and gathering together um, is a big part of Ramadan, and that is really hindered by COVID-19, but as we found out with Easter and Passover, folks are finding lots of innovative ways to still uh, exercise their faith in this unusual time. And as I mentioned, this is just a portion of the interview that you're going to hear now. You can head to our website or social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, for the full interview here on celebrating Ramadan in a time of COVID-19. Here now is correspondent Megan Kamrick with that discussion. I think every one of us still, even though we're in isolation, we, uh, we rush to help in any capacity. We take great pride in helping community. Uh, you'll find uh, many of the, uh, of the Muslim community usually gather around the mosques 
and we uh, donate to the mosque, and the mosque end, uh, ends up uh, giving donations to the poor, to the needy, uh, to the elderly, to the disabled. All right, that's it for this week's edition of New Mexico in Focus. We really want to take a moment to shout out to our entire team, and that includes our correspondents who are all freelancers here at the station. They're bringing us just some amazing people and amazing stories of the impacts of COVID-19. We're so appreciative for their efforts and the variety and the diversity of stories that we're telling right now under unusual circumstances. We hope you're enjoying it as well. We encourage you to send us ideas for other topics or issues that you'd like to see us tackle on the show. You can do that by sending us an email at Focus at nmpbs.org or hop on into, into any of those social media platforms and leave us a note there as well. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate your effort to stay informed on this important topic, and we appreciate all the opinions and thoughts on everything that we're all experiencing together. We hope that you have a terrific weekend, that you stay safe, that you stay healthy, wear those face masks, wash your hands, do all those important things to curb the spread of COVID-19, and we'll talk to you again next week.